All right, so I want to start with just a little bit of a conversation about how we handle politics at Pursuit, uh, because today we're talking about politics and earthly kingdoms. And so um, I want to start just with an idea that Jesus uh, kind of lays out there. And it's, it's, again, one of those situations where he just gives you a brilliant way of thinking about how to handle some of this stuff. And it was uh, at a point in Jesus' uh, ministry where he was trying to sort of the people around him were trying to catch him in a, a bad take, right? Um, it's sort of like gotcha journalism, except we're talking about people at the temple here. Um, and so they actually cornered Jesus and asked him a question that should have been really hard for him to answer. They said, Jesus, are we supposed to pay subjugation taxes to Caesar? Okay, and they were asking a very specific question. Not the regular taxes that everyone would pay, not taxes Roman citizens paid, but an extra tax that subjects of Rome would pay. They were asking Jesus this question because they wanted to put Jesus in a situation where he either had to say Caesar uh, was Lord or that he was Lord, that Caesar was in charge or that God was in charge. Um, and so they asked the question, should we pay these subjugation taxes? Are we uh, required to give Caesar uh, subjugation taxes and worship him as God? That is what is implied in the question. And Jesus grabbed a coin and he said, whose face is on this coin? And uh you know, they're all like, Caesar's face is on the coin, right? Back then, that's what it was. Caesar's face was on all the coins. And he said, great, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And at Pursuit, we think about politics a little bit like this. Um, I fully believe 100% that you can be a Democrat and be a Christian. I believe that you can be a Republican and be a Christian. But one of the things that I'll advocate for as your pastor all the time is that you should be a Christian first and a politician after. That your, that your politics should be informed by your, your relationship with Jesus, not your relationship with Jesus be, be informed by your, by your politics. Um, and so we don't take a stand on any specific candidate or uh, any specific party or platform because Jesus essentially said, hey, you let Caesar be where Caesar is and you focus on what you can focus on, which is God's kingdom. There, there was a, two warring kingdoms here. There was Caesar's kingdom where if you paid those subjugation taxes, or you uh, found yourself as a Roman citizen as your sort of highest value in your identity, you would basically be saying Caesar is Lord. That was essentially what you were doing. So you were saying the kingdom that I serve is the kingdom of Rome. It's the kingdom of Caesar as Lord. Or you would say I serve the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom where God is in charge and he is Lord. Uh, and you have a choice, one or the other. And in Jesus' situation, he said, great, we're going to separate these two things. We're going to let that be over there, and we're going to let this be over here, okay? When we're talking about a heavenly kingdom, we're talking about an eternal kingdom. We're talking about a kingdom that doesn't go in and out of style. The truth about this kingdom doesn't change. Think, you know, the, the differences between uh, how they were worshiping in uh, the first century and now is, is an issue of style, not an issue of substance. We still believe the same stuff. It's still the core of who we are as Christians, as believers. It's our identity. It's an eternal kingdom that we serve. Our local politics, our local kingdom, the kingdom of the United States of America that we live in, or the kingdom of Rome, when they were talking about that in the first century, is a temporal kingdom. It's a kingdom that ebbs and flows. It comes and it goes. The things that are popular now won't be popular in five years or 10 years or 15 or 20. You think about the things that are important to people in the 70s and in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. They're different than the things that are uh, important to people now. Those things will come and go. Those people, those characters on the political landscape will come and go. Uh, the issues that are important, they'll come and go. The, the things that we think are the most important thing in the entire world that's going to ruin our life or change our life, or they will be important today, and in the future they'll change. But when it comes to God's kingdom, we keep that as the core, the center of what we talk about. So we don't come out and say, you should vote for this candidate, or you should vote be part of this platform. We say, let your relationship with Jesus inform your politics. That's what we say. Uh, and so I encourage you to engage with politics. I think Christians should be in the public square. Um, and I, I think all of us can make a difference and can be part of what's going on. And it is important for us to engage, but we should allow our, our relationship with Jesus to inform our politics, not our politics to inform our relationship with Jesus. So let's not get those two things uh, uh, backwards. And so my question for you before we start today is, what is your most important filter? What is your most important filter? And I believe um, that I could show you what your most important filter is uh, very easily. 
I believe that if you plotted out your time in a week and if you opened up your checking account and showed the things that you spend your money on, we would be very, we could very easily find out what it is that you worship. Uh, the things that you spend your time on and the things that you spend your money on are generally the things that are the filter that you see the rest of the world through. Now, in Minnesota, a lot of those things are good. We really value family. We really value, uh, for the part of the year that we can be outside, we value being outdoors and we value nature. We value uh, taking care of the nature that God's given us here because it's beautiful to live here. Uh, we value uh, all kinds of, of things here in Minnesota that are good. We, there's also things that people value. There are filters that are not so good. Um, there are, is the value of comfort, of self, of serving yourself and your own comfort. There is the value of... Um, of serving your own success or serving your own uh, drive to, to have things, to have money and to have possessions. There is uh, a lot of times people's filter goes through uh, addictions like pornography or uh, sex uh, addiction or, or alcohol or drugs. There are things that can get us off track and those kind of things can become our filter. We can begin making decisions based on how we can serve those things instead of serving the bigger picture. And what I would say is uh, the filter that we're always looking for as Christians is to be Jesus-centered first, is to allow Jesus to inform everything else about our life. All of our decisions get made through the, the lens of who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and what he has called us to do in the world. And so that's where we begin uh, today. And so I want to take you to Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, and I want to ask you, what is your, what is your uh, most important filter? This is what Jesus has to say. He's teaching uh, most, his most famous teaching. It's right smack dab in the middle of it. This is what he says about his kingdom. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given unto you as well. I just added in my old, the old translation, unto you, will be given to you as well. Uh, and Jesus basically sets a standard for his believers that the first thing a Christian does is seeks God's kingdom. We don't worry about all the details. When we have God's kingdom first, all of those other smaller decisions and, uh, and things that we got we to gotta work out and figure out, those things, they don't create anxiety in our life because they become issue two through whatever. That number one is God's kingdom and the rest of that stuff is details, okay? And you might be thinking, well, that's ridiculous. My family is not details. I'm not saying not some of these things aren't good. I'm just saying Jesus calls us to seek his kingdom first and then let everything else fall into place. And what the, the genius of this is, is actually to say, I have faith in Christ that if I put my faith and trust in him, that he will not leave me floundering around in some of these areas, that he'll give me everything that I need. Um, and I trust in him by putting him first. This is a biblical concept. We talk about first fruits uh, when we give, we say, hey, you know, the, the offering that God appreciates the most is the person who gives with a joyful heart and gives from the first of everything that they have. It's the person who sits down and writes the check to God's ministry before they pay any of the bills, okay? It's the person who decides to prioritize God in a way that allows them uh, to give Him what's first in their life. It's the first thing we do in the morning sometimes with our time. Uh, maybe it's the last thing we do before we go to sleep. It's the, the place we spend our time. It's the place that we, we draw other people into. It's the, the place we teach our kids to go. These are all part of the first fruits idea where Jesus' kingdom is first. And if we spend uh, our time making sure that we give to God out of our first fruits of our money, our time, um, uh, our relationships, everything that we have, then everything else falls into place. And that is true about politics too. So let me ask this question, and this is a hard question for I think a lot of us to be honest about or to answer, especially in the season. And as a pastor, um, I'm always a bit of a sociologist. I'm always trying to unlock what's going on in our culture, what's going on in our people, what's going on with you know non-Christians in our world. And probably like you, what I've seen is kind of depressing. Um, it shows sort of the underbelly of American culture and maybe even Christian culture in some regard. What I'm seeing online, what I'm seeing in the discourse that I'm seeing people engage in with one another is uh, at an all-time low is what it feels like. Now, maybe it's not at an all-time low. I'm only 40. Maybe it was worse in the 70s when I wasn't alive. But I can tell you in my lifetime, this feels like 
one of the worst situations that we've been in as far as polarization, as far as the discourse, as far as the rhetoric, um, as far as vilifying one another when we disagree about things, as far as uh, creating division and not unity in our, in our country and in our world and in the church even. Um, it feels that way to me. So let me ask you this question, okay? Uh, uh, and this would be a test for you to see if your first filter is politics or your first filter is Jesus' kingdom, okay? Let's fast forward to Tuesday. Let's say by some miracle we know who the president's going to be on Tuesday night, which seems like we won't. Seems like it's going to be drawn out. It's probably going to be legal battles. Probably going to be people protesting. I mean, some of these things are very real possibilities, which, by the way, I'll get to later, but I'm praying against all those things. I'm praying that this is a clean, fair uh, situation that we know immediately that people uh, find a way to, to figure this out, dealing with the new reality of whatever comes out of this. Um, but let me ask you these questions. If your side or candidate uh, doesn't win, okay, um, would this cause you to lose hope? So if your side or your candidate on Tuesday doesn't win, would this cause you to lose hope? Lose hope in the system, hope in the country? Um, would this, if your side or your system, your, your, uh, your candidate doesn't win, would it affect your identity? Would it affect your identity? Would you say, I don't even know where I fit anymore in this world. If, if everyone was willing to vote that way, I don't even know if I want to be part of this country or I like what's going on here. Or how can we be so this or how can we be, be so that? Would it affect if on Tuesday your candidate or your side of the aisle w loses, uh, would it affect your community? Would your entire community of people that you're connected with, would they all be crushed, lose hope, and have their identity identities shaken? Would it, if your side of the aisle lost on Tuesday, affect your significance? Because I think sometimes if we were to step back and say, uh, my guy or side-winning uh, and why does it have to be guy? But you know, I wish, wish we could vote for a lady. I'm just gonna throw that one out there. Uh, my candidate, my side of the aisle. Uh, if it affected my hope, my identity, my community, my significance, then what I'm saying to you is that your politics is an idol in your life. That your filter is backwards. That your politics is informing your spiritual condition and your relationship with Jesus instead of the other way around. The beauty of being a follower of Christ is that no matter what happens on Tuesday, I know where my hope comes from, who my identity is in, where my community is at, and what my significance is. Those things, they don't change. When you're part of God's kingdom and you put His kingdom first, those things don't get shaken. This is why he tells us to build our lives on a strong foundation that when storms come, our, our, our lives won't be washed away by having ourselves on a weak foundation. Politics is a temporal kingdom, and it is a weak foundation. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Sometimes your people are in control, sometimes the other people are in control. Sometimes it goes exactly the way you want. Actually, I don't think it really goes the way that anyone wants, to be honest with you. It always feels like everybody loses all the time. If you're building your life on that temporal foundation, then days like Tuesday, you dread. You think, I might wake up and I might lose my hope, my identity, my community, and my significance today. Today might be the day that it all gets washed away. Or today might be the day that it gets completely affirmed while I watch half of the countries have theirs washed away. I can't take joy in watching somebody else lose. I can't take joy in winning when I know what's at stake. For me, this is a, a really core principle of what it means to be active in politics, but to continue to remember my hope, my significance, my identity, my community. All of these things come through Christ and His church and His mission. So we always say first things first here. That's it. We are going to talk about Jesus' kingdom being the first thing that we, we seek, the first thing that we give to, the first thing we sacrifice for, the first thing that, uh, that drives us as, as created beings. And I think a lot of people this Tuesday will be reeling no matter what. I think the rhetoric will be insane that uh, we'll probably have demonstrations. There will probably be unrest. There will probably be a lot of opportunities for Christians who have their lives built on solid foundations to come alongside people who have had their identities, their significance, um, their hope, 
and their communities shaken. There's opportunity in the world that will come about after this election. And I want to talk a little bit just quickly about the first church. Now, the first church, you could step back and say, like, they didn't live in a very politically charged time, and I think you might be missing something if you said that. The, the first church uh, was at first thought of as a cult, okay? And they were sort of smack dab in the middle between two kingdoms that were putting pressure on them from two different directions. In one regard, the church had Rome kind of breathing down its neck. And actually, there are times in Scripture where we see, uh, you know, uh, the, the people who wrote the New Testament telling us that we should be honoring authorities, and those authorities are actually persecuting uh, Christians, which is an amazing thing to step back and think about. The one thing that we don't have and we should not drum up and is not good for us as Christians, is to have this, this mentality that the government's out to get us or that we are somehow in a situation where we're, being, um, uh, we're, we're having to deal with all kinds of persecution. Uh, we're not dealing with persecution. We don't understand what persecution is in this country. Uh, move to many countries in this world and you'll understand what persecution is. We do not go through persecution uh, in the United States. Because we've lost a culture war or two here or there, we think that we're under some kind of persecution. Oh my goodness, people aren't saying Merry Christmas anymore. Or, oh my goodness, you know, whatever. Like, oh, we're under such persecution. We need to stop that, okay? We're not under persecution. We are, uh, we're in a really amazing place in history where we are actually fairly safe and fairly free to practice um, our relationship with Jesus. However, the early church, one side was Rome, breathing down its neck, often persecuting it, a lot of pressure on it. The other side was the temple, okay? So you had two different kingdoms here. You had the kingdom of religion breathing down its neck onto the church, and you had the kingdom of, uh, of Rome and of the emperor sort of uh, on one side, and they were both putting forces on top of the church. And you know, the church found a way, the leaders of the church found a way, not to buckle under that pressure, but to continue to persevere. Um, and I'm going to get to all the ways that they did that in a minute. But, but there was one place that they were willing to be civilly disobedient. Okay, And I want to talk about that real quick, because I want to make it very clear what, as a Christian, you should stand up for, and you should say, I will be civilly disobedient in this area if this ever, ever happens. Okay, And this is what it looked like for the first church, they uh, began to be civilly disobedient in Acts chapter 4. So the first church had begun. Uh, this church had popped up in homes, in backyards, and in the temple courts. And to be specific, the area of the temple that they would often go and preach at was the place where Jews and Gentiles mixed. So it was a, the place where the, the religious Jewish people and the non-religious people mixed in the temple courts. It was called Solomon's Colonnade. It was a section of the temple that was added on by Solomon that was meant to be a place where Gentiles could come and be involved in worship. They weren't allowed to go into the temple or into the inner courts, but they could stay in the outer courts. And as like bystanders or onlookers, they could kind of... Uh, be part of what was going on in some way. The first church went from homes to, they went door to door. They had meals together. They were basically doing house churches. And then they would go into the temple courts where non-religious people were and they would preach. And so in Acts chapter four, the, the disciples go into uh, the temple courts and they start preaching. And it says like 2000 people uh, respond to their message and and start to worship Jesus openly in the temple courts. And of course, the religious system that was in place was like, uh-uh, no, 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 this ain't happening. Now, they had been through a lot. There was a lot of reasons for them to try to protect their community. There had been a lot of people who had come before them and talked about uh, raising the dead or you know other saviors before that turned out not to be saviors. So they were always skeptical. And so what the disciples did was they said, okay, fine. They healed a person who had been lame for 40 years of their life. So a person who had been unable to walk or get around, this person they healed. Uh, and, so, and then they started to preach. And then 2,000 people uh, accepted Christ and started to follow their little cult uh, of Jesus followers. And then the religious people who were in charge were like, we're going to squash this. So they came to the temple courts and arrested the disciples and brought them into uh, the Sanhedrin, into the religious... Um, group of people and into their inner circle and said, hey, we're going to talk this through and we're going to 
sanction you from saying what you've been saying. And this is what it says. Uh, they get to the end of the conversation and they're like, well, uh, what are we supposed to do with these people? They gave the story that they had healed somebody, that they were talking about Jesus, that they would continue to talk about Jesus. And here's what the Sanhedrin decided to do with the first disciples. Okay, so here you go. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 16. It said, everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. The first thing they said was, the church has power because they worship Jesus and we've seen it in play. Okay, there's nothing we can do to ignore or deny that this church is powerful and it is real, okay? And then they came back to the disciples and they said, but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And they were talking about Jesus. They were saying to the church, you can't preach the name of Jesus, okay? You're going to continue to create, uh, incite riots, or do things that, you know, upset the power structure here in the temple, and we're not going to allow this. We need you to stop speaking the name of Jesus. And so then the disciples were like, cool, we'll just, yeah, no worries, we'll just do that. No, this is where they began to be civilly disobedient. It says, then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. And I want you to know civil disobedience comes in as Christians when we are told to shut our mouths about Christ. That this is also a way of seeking the kingdom first. Are you with me? The place where we become civilly disobedient is the place where people tell us no longer to name Jesus Christ and to talk about his kingdom. That's the place where we become civilly disobedient. If the government or a party or a candidate or somebody steps on, on that, then we'll go, great, we're all in this together, and we're going to talk about the kingdom no matter what, and we're not going to be quiet about it. You know, we got free speech in this country, and we're going to use it to talk about kingdom, because the kingdom is what we care about the most. Kingdom-minded people filter everything through Jesus' kingdom first. That's what we do. Uh, and I'll ask you that question again. If your side or candidate doesn't win on Tuesday or next month, or whenever we get to the end of it. Will that affect your hope? Will that affect your identity? Will that affect your community? Will that affect your significance? Because if it does, then your idol is politics, not seeking Jesus' kingdom first. It's seeking something else first. And I want you to know you stand on a solid foundation when you put your hope and trust and life into Christ and his kingdom. So kingdom-minded people filter everything through Jesus' kingdom first. Now, how should we go on? What should we do? How do we engage as Christians in the political discourse? Maybe it's clear to us we should seek the kingdom first. So what does that mean? What does that look like? And in order to answer that question, I want to go to uh, Titus chapter 3. I want to share with you these verses 1 and 2. Uh, and this is right after a section where, uh, where the church is being uh, encouraged to put God's word first. And then we have in uh, verse 1 and 2 kind of like a, a tag on. So it's like, hey, God's word should be primary and then also just remember this. So this is what he says. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities and to be obedient, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle toward everyone. So we're like, well, how are we supposed to uh, engage as Christians in politics or in this arena of life? The first idea is that kingdom-minded people are obedient to earthly authorities. And I know how that feels. Maybe sometimes we like that because we like the authorities that are above us. And other times we think we should be civilly disobedient because of how awful this authority is. And I understand this is a fine line. And I'm not talking that we shouldn't advocate for justice. I'm not talking about that we shouldn't, um, that we shouldn't protest things as Christians. I believe that we're called to engage in the process fully. And there are some things that are worth fighting about. Um, and I think we've seen some of those this year. I think there have been times where we've had to fight about justice and we've had to put up a, a stink about it and we've had to stand up and do it, but we do it peacefully and we are obedient to earthly authorities in that situation. We are 
keeping our eyes on the idea. And you have to remember when they're writing this, their earthly authorities were awful. Okay, we think that we are in a bad spot because we have to be a, 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 you know, obedient to such a horrible person or a horrible group of people or a horrible system. And to be honest with you, no matter how bad our candidates are or how bad our parties are or how bad anything is in our world, it's not as bad as it was in the first century when the rule of law then was might makes right. Whoever has the power takes the authority, takes the money, takes the, the, you know, the justice, takes everything, and you're just sort of stuck with whatever they leave you or offer you. The kingdom-minded people are obedient to, uh, to the earthly authorities. Look, look at what it says in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. If I, if I could just nail this down for you again here, just to make sure that we're clear about this. And this is Romans. We're writing this to people who live in Rome, in the epicenter of the, uh, of the empire, okay? The epicenter of Caesar's influence. There was plenty of times where Caesar was uh, influencing Rome and had a really hard time influencing the extension of the Roman uh, kingdom, which would have extended to Jerusalem. So people lived sort of peacefully, not as part of the, the bigger empire. But this was written to Christians who lived in Rome, who were dealing with persecution, who were dealing with uh, how do we start up a little church here where essentially everyone here worships Caesar? And we're saying don't worship Caesar, worship Jesus, right? So this is what Romans chapter 13 says. Let everyone be subject to the government, the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Ugh. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Wait, what? Hold on a second. You're saying that this candidate who I don't like of A party or B party who will be president, who will crush my hope and uh, my significance and all of this, that I have to be okay with this because God has placed this person? Uh, yes, that's what the Bible is telling us. That even when we have bad leaders, even when we have leaders that we don't respect or don't admire or, don't, or think are maybe even evil, we're called as Christians to uh, be subject to them and to be obedient to them in every way that we can except for when we're talking about civil disobedience, which is really serving Jesus' gospel and his kingdom. This is a very rare occurrence in the United States of America. Uh, we might find people being civilly disobedient all over the world when countries are saying to them, you can't meet uh, for church, you can't pray, you can't have a Bible, you can't uh, talk about or share God's kingdom with other people, and then they're going to be civilly disobedient. But for us, we're called to be obedient to these people and to be subject to them, and it doesn't feel good all the time. The first church, it didn't feel good to them to worship God and still be subject to Caesar. The Jews, their whole goal was to get Caesar off their back. They thought Jesus was coming to remove the Roman Empire, right, and to get the Roman Empire out of their life. They thought it to be an unjust system that was, you know, uh, putting them in situations that as a country or as a people that they didn't want to be in. And yet, this is what we're called to do. That we should be subject to these authorities. That there is no authority except that which God has established. And this comes back to a principle that I think all Christians need to learn how to apply across the board. And it, it's, it's a very simple thing, but a very hard thing to do. Right? At the end of the day, I have to have faith that Jesus is in control and that God knows what he's doing. Okay? I know this is hard. I know sometimes when we are persevering through a system where we don't feel like it's just or we don't like the candidate who's uh, about to be uh, elected or who's in charge or, or whatever, we, we feel like we need to fight this. We need to, but we're not called to that. We're called to have faith that God knows what he's doing. And I like the, um, uh, the phrase here. This is kind of a phrase that I remind myself of a lot and one that I tell people a lot. And I, I took this phrase from a pastor named Tim Keller and I adjusted it. So this is the the Newmark International version of Tim Keller uh, doing his thing. But this is what I want you to know. When this comes to, to life in our world, you would make the same decision God would if you knew everything God does. You would make the same decision that God would make if you knew everything that God does. The truth of it is, Paul talked about this in his writing too, we have a limited view on what's actually happening. We only know, really, in our little bubble, in our little country, in our little state or town, in our group of relationships, what we know. And yet God has his finger on the entire timeline of history 
and where he is moving things and taking things. And so when we stand back and we say, you know, God must not be in control because this guy is in control of, our, of this temporal government that we have right now at this point in history, what we're saying is we don't have faith that Jesus is fully in control of the world around us. And we're saying we don't necessarily have faith that he is good. Those are two things that I think as Christians we need to step back and say, I will have faith in God and I will respect whatever the decision is or whoever the person is because I know God is fully in control. He has everything in mind. And earthly authorities are not put in a position by accident. They're there because God has ordained those people to be there and he has called me to trust in him. Again, it goes back to, is my life built on the foundation of trusting Christ and his kingdom, or is it built on the temporal foundation of trusting in the leaders, the politics, the society, the culture around me? All of those things can get washed away tomorrow. Whatever's popular now can be unpopular tomorrow. Whatever I put my hope and trust and faith and significance in now can be gone tomorrow, unless it's something eternal. And so I step back, and I'm called to be obedient. Uh, I'm called to trust that God has a plan and that he is in charge. And my faith, my hope, my significance, all those things come from my identity in Jesus. So I'm going to go back to Titus 3.1. So we looked at the first, first part. Reminder, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. So he says, be obedient to the people that are in charge of you. Then in verse 2, I want to remind you this. He says, slander no one, be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. And I know that some of you Facebook warriors out there or social media warriors, you read this and you're like, eh, but I have to make a point. When someone says such and such, I have to make a point. I've got to just put it out there. And you know what? If they get offended by it, that's on them. Or you know what? If they, uh, they don't like what I have to say, I honestly, I can't really care about that because I have to uh, make sure that I war for truth. And I want you to understand... <laughs> Jesus can uh, protect his own legacy, and uh, his truth is not going anywhere, and your job is not to go out there and to slam people in the face with truth. Your job is to go out there and be slanderous to no one, to be peaceable, to be considerate, and to always be gentle towards everyone. And can I ask you the question, is your political speech full of peace, consideration, and gentleness? Because that's what we're being called to. Our, our political speech should be full of peace, consideration, and gentleness. When we find ourselves in a battle online, uh, we find ourselves trying to make a point with anyone. Do we think that that's doing anything? When was the last time somebody argued you into a point that you didn't hold before that conversation in a digital space? It doesn't happen. I just walk away from those conversations thinking, well, that guy's an idiot, and he's an idiot, and they're an idiot, and they're stupid, and they don't know other things. And they... But in reality, no one wins in these arguments on social media. Social media just basically allows us to beat up on each other and to bloody each other during a time when we honestly would be better off to pull together and to love one another. And he's saying, you know, the scripture is telling us as Christians, like, don't be slanderous, be gentle. Be considerate. Use your words. Now, it's hard to do that in written form. You know, I just worked through um, a situation where two people were having some conflict, um, and you know, it was a it was a pretty tight relationship. It was a a parent and a and a child, and we were working through kind of trying to get them on the same page and helping them understand each other and and kind of helping them communicate to one another. And it turned out this this adult adult child and their adult parent, right? Uh, that most of their problems were coming when they began to text each other. That when they were having conflict, they would start texting, and then things would be misunderstood and would be uh, would make things worse. And the person would be like, "No, no, this is what I I didn't mean that. I meant this, you know." And they'd be like, "Well, here's the text, and I read it, and I could see how they had interpreted it this way, and this person had meant it like this, and I could see that we were going to have trouble here figuring this out unless we could get." Um, them together talking in a room. And when we did get them together talking in a room, they worked it out. We have to remember the written word is like one of the worst forms of communication when it comes to trying to make a point. And I would call you as a Christian not to make a point, but to make 
a difference. The question is, are you making a point or are you making a difference? Making a difference is completely different than making a point. Making a difference is caring about the other person across the conversation from you. And often this is happening in a much more intimate setting without an audience egging people on. There are no trolls, generally, in this conversation. If you want to get somewhere with someone, you go to Scripture. What does it tell us to do? When we have a problem with somebody, what does Jesus say? Uh, you should go to them and point out the problem that, they, that you have with them, how they have offended you, and you should work it out. And if you don't work it out, if the person is too obtuse to listen or, or to, to be changed by that conversation, bring back some other people who can help mediate that problem. And if that doesn't work, bring your pastors along, right? Go get somebody who's in authority and have that person come and have the conversation. But always in person, always caring about the person who's on the other side, not necessarily just trying to make a point, but trying to make a difference in someone's life. And if our political speech was full of consideration and gentleness and uh, the way that the scriptures are calling us to, it would a lot of times look much more like us being in person with one another, having the conversation and considering with the other person. And, and if you're looking for pointers on this, I would just say that it's pretty easy. Uh, first, listen. <laughs> listen to what they're saying, okay? And when people start throwing around talking points, instead of arguing their talking point to the ground and telling them why they're stupid, ask the question, why is this topic or thing so important to you? You want to hear someone's heart as to why something is so important to them? Ask them why they feel so passionately about this issue or this topic. And generally, you will uncover all kinds of things that will motivate you to enter into that relationship and at that moment. Like, why is sex trafficking such a big problem for you? Well, when I was a kid, I was molested. And I want to make sure that girls feel safe. I've heard that in conversation. I've heard people say, you know, for me... Uh, you know, uh, I worry about kids at the border because for me, you know, coming from a situation that I came from, I want to provide safety for children. I've heard people talk about, you know, um, even, even topics like industry or, or manufacturing, like, hey, the, the plant closed in my town. My dad was out of work. It killed all these. Like, I, there are things behind political points that people are trying to make that are very real and raw and things that we can enter into conversation about and show empathy over and be considerate and gentle. And you know what happens when you do that? People are wide open to what you have to say. And then we shouldn't take the, the chance to correct them or change their mind. We should talk about Jesus. Like at that point, we should say, you know, Jesus cares about this. Here's what, here's what he has to say about it. Here's the kingdom I serve. It's about Christ. You know, I'm glad to hear what you have to say. Let me share with you a little bit about what Christ has done in my life. These are the conversations that we need to have as Christians, full of gentleness, consideration, uh, not trying to make a point, but trying to make a difference. And when you share your heart and not your solutions, people listen to what you have to say. When you ask them to share their heart and not their solutions, they open up and explain to you why they feel the way they feel. Okay? Yeah, people wholeheartedly grab full platforms and... They'll sometimes, if an issue is not that important to them, but they just want to win, they'll throw at you all the talking points. And you'll realize in that moment, this isn't really a conversation that they care about. It's one that they're trying to win on. And then you just move the conversation down the road. Be gentle and considerate. See where it goes. This is, I believe, how Christians are called to respond in the climate that we're in, is not to win the war, not to make the point, but to make the difference. Kingdom-minded people make a difference. Kingdom-minded people make a difference. We don't make a point, we make a difference. And then lastly, this should be like, <laughs> so easy. This one should be the one that we don't have to talk about, but I believe we do. Uh, Kingdom-minded people, lastly, they pray. You want to know if you're serving God's kingdom and His Kingdom first, how often do you pray about the things that you really care about or stressed out about and anxiety about? How often do you pray for the people that are your enemies, the people that you disagree with, the people that you're frustrated with? Because when you begin to pray about those things and about those people, you find a peace that is uh, unbelievable. Let, let me share with you in First Timothy what Paul says. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people. 
if you can't stand back and be thankful about something the other side has done, you might be worshiping the platform or the person instead of the kingdom of God. For kings, for all those who are in authority, that we may live peacefully and quiet lives in all godliness and in all holiness. He tells us that we should be praying for anyone who has authority. So you should be praying for your pastor, the people who are in charge of your town, the people who are in charge of your state, the people who are in charge of your country. You should be thankful for the burden that they carry. And I can tell you that whether you like a politician or not, whether you like what they're doing or not, that there is a significant burden that comes along with leadership that not everybody connects with or understands. And that people in those positions of authority feel that prayer and feel that support from people, even if they disagree in some way. That it is important. If you believe that Jesus cares and changes things through prayer, then you'll find yourself, instead of whining or complaining or allowing your, your, your life to be rocked by politics, you'll find yourself in prayer, uh, petitions, intercession, and thanksgiving being made for kings and people in authority and those who are above you. And you'll be thinking, God, thank you for not giving me that authority. Right? Like, it's hard to carry all of these people. It's hard to carry. And he says that we may live peaceful, quiet lives in godliness and holiness. At the end of this, he says, what's most important for us is to preserve our godliness and our holiness. And I want you to know that was the story of the first church. That um, in the middle of the pressures that were coming from Rome and the pressures that were coming from the religious system, which was out of step with God, that in the middle of these pressures, these people didn't fight the, the two warring kingdoms that were looking to crush them. They stayed focused on Jesus. They wouldn't shut up about Jesus. They wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. They sought His kingdom first. And every time the government tried to stamp down the first church, it popped up somewhere else. You fast forward from Acts 4 to Acts 8, you find that the church is persecuted in Jerusalem and spread out to the regions of the earth. Jesus said right before he went to heaven, Acts, 1 chapter, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And these people were like, great, we're just going to hunker down in Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 8, persecution comes against the church. You know what happens? The church then pops up in Judea and Samaria and out to the ends of the earth. We see God's church continuing to thrive, even though persecution is happening, continuing to thrive, even though there's pressure coming from both directions, because... They kept their godliness and their holiness and God's kingdom in the center of what they were doing. They protected those things. They stood out among the people of those, uh, those kingdoms as people who could be trusted, who would care for them, who would be concerned for them, uh, who would be engaged in, in their lives. These, they won over the people in every situation because they were full of godliness and full of holiness, and they kept God's kingdom first. He finishes the, the section of 1 Timothy 2, 1-3 with this verse. This is good. and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul reminds them, yes, pray for kings and authorities. Be holy and godly people. But let me remind you what's at stake here. What's at stake is not the authority of the temporal kingdom that's in front of you. That's what you think's at stake. What's at stake is not your personal rights that you're worried about losing or changing or whatever. You think that's what's at stake. Those will come and those will go over time. They'll change season to season, decade to decade, century to century. The authorities will change. The personalities will change. The culture will change. All of these things will change. What's at stake is none of those things. That's what it seems like. What's at stake is the eternity of people all around us. Step back and realize what's at stake here is way bigger than any of the temporary stuff that we think is so important. We think that if we lose this election, that our world is going to end and that things are going to be awful. And you know what? Things will change. But what we can't take our eye off is the, 
the eternity of people all around us who don't know Christ. And if we're busy losing uh, favor in their eyes because we're trying to make a point, then what are we doing? I mean, I can't tell you how to vote or I, I can't tell you what candidate is the best thing for you to do. I, mean, I have my opinions, you have your opinions, but I can tell you as Christians, we need to be focused on God's kingdom, His godliness, His holiness. That needs to be what's centered to who we are. We need to deal with people gently so we don't lose favor of people who need to hear the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what's at stake. The eternity of the world around us. And right now, no one's focused on that. We're focused on the temporal issues of politics and of leaders and of, you know, the polarization of making a point and fighting with people here and there and everywhere. And Paul reminds us, Jesus implores us, pay attention to the eternity of people around you. And how are you going to reach them? It's going to be to be gentle, full of consideration, focused on godliness and holiness, winning their favor and keeping Jesus' kingdom first. Let me pray. God, would you let us be about your kingdom first and foremost? That yes, we'll be engaged politically, but would you let that be an afterthought to our relationship with you? Jesus, would you bring people into our life and give us favor in their eyes so that we can tell them about your gospel, so that we can save them from an eternity of not being with and in relationship with you? Would you help us to be reminded this week that no matter what happens on Tuesday or next month, God, that our foundation is secure, our identity is secure, our hope is secure, our community is secure. These things are all secure in our relationship with you. Help us to keep you first. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys. You need to talk. You, you need someone to pray for you. You need, you know, advice or help. Let me know this week. I am there for you. We are there for you. Um, and honestly, we hope to be back in the gym next week. As long as everybody's healthy and things are good, we will always be careful to make sure that we're valuing everyone's safety. Next week, I'm going to really lay out where we're at as a church financially, and I'm going to encourage our church to, again, consider generosity and where God is calling us to go as a church. There's going to be a lot about our vision, a lot about where we're going. And so I really look forward to sharing my heart with you in that area. Um, and so I invite you to be back with us next week, whether we are here in the gym or online. I love you guys. See you next week.